this is the Curious Crow Podcast. Okay, we are back in the Coke and Pepsi land, ladies and gentlemen. So if you remember where we left off on part one, Coke had just sold for $25 million in 1919, and Pepsi was on the verge of bankruptcy. But Coke had a little gremlin hiding in the wings that was ready to, you know, cause him some problems. So let's think back to 1899 when Coca-Cola had those bottling contracts that Asa Candler had set up. And Candler, remember, didn't see much of a future in bottling and didn't really care. So he sold the rights for $1 because he thought he could sell plenty of Coke syrup through bottling, and that was his main goal. So these contracts were super open-ended and very, very vague, but they did fix the price at $0.05. So fast forward 20 years in the future, and the price of Coke is still $0.05 for a 6.5-ounce serving. Now, inflation is low during this time period, which helped, but still, the price needed to be increased. But the Coca-Cola bottlers all said no, that the contract had fixed the price at $0.05. They were selling plenty of Coke, So they didn't really care uh, and didn't want to do anything that could possibly jeopardize their sales. Now, in 1928, bottling sales had already surpassed what was going on in the soda fountains. And so Coke was starting to realize that their, their popularity and their profitability could be in real trouble because they're not able to raise the price. And then on the flip side, if they did raise the price, how's that going to hurt them? How's that going to hurt their sales? So Coke is mired in, in, in quite the quandary at this point. Now, we flip back to Pepsi, and in 1923, Pepsi does declare bankruptcy. And the creditors from the bankruptcy court, they took over the assets of Pepsi, and they tried and tried and tried to make Pepsi successful. And guess what? In 1931, Pepsi declares bankruptcy again. I'll tell you what, some rounds are just tougher than others, aren't they? So there's a man by the name of Charles Guth, and Guth owned loft candy stores, and these candy stores had soda fountains in them. And Guth just happened to have a grudge against Coke, because Guth was a a very large customer of Coke. He bought about 31,000 gallons of Coke syrup per year. So he went to Coca-Cola and said, hey man, I'm buying like 31,000 gallons of syrup, I I need a discount. And Coke told him to go pound sand, that he was a retailer and not a wholesaler, so no discount for you. So Guth goes, you know what, I'm just going to buy Pepsi (laughs) and then replace my Coke syrup with Pepsi syrup. So Guth ended up buying Pepsi for about $10,500 out of bankruptcy, which doesn't sound like much, but that's about $202,000 in today's money. And Guth just dived right in. The first thing he did was he tweaked the formula to make it better, okay? And in 1933, he goes, you know what I'm going to do to compete with Coke? I'm going to sell 12 ounces of Pepsi for five cents. So whereas Coke is still sitting at six, six and a half ounces for a nickel, and they can't change their price, Guth goes, well, I'm going to sell double for the same price. And so they started using the marketing slogan, Worth a dime, costs a nickel. And this skyrocketed sales for Pepsi. The slogan was great. And, you know, this was a time where people didn't have a lot of money. We're in the Depression era. And uh, so why not get twice the product for the same price? And this was a big, a big blow to Coca-Cola. Pepsi didn't have the bad bottling deals that Coke did. 
And so they were actually making profit on stuff other than just syrup. Remember, Coke is stuck with just syrup profit because of their bottling franchises. And so Pepsi sales started to outpace Coke at this point. And Pepsi, by 1936, had made $2 million profit in 1936, uh, which today is like $38.5 million. So Pepsi's doing all right. And this is only five years after, you know, getting out of bankruptcy. So Guth's on top of the world. You know, Pepsi's just made $38.5 million. And the vultures start coming for him. Wait, that's not good news at all. What old Charles Guth had failed to realize was that he was neglecting Loft Candy. He's still the head of Loft Candy. And he focused all of his efforts on Pepsi and made Pepsi a great success. But, you know, the collateral damage was that Loft Candy Company was on the verge of bankruptcy itself. So Loft Candy sued Charles Guth, claiming that he had used Loft's facilities to promote Pepsi and more importantly, had used Loft's finances to fund and promote Pepsi. So a huge, long legal battle ensued over this. There were several trials, I mean, tons of attorney fees, and the case ended up going all the way to the Delaware Supreme Court, and Guth lost. So Pepsi now became property of Loft Candy. Yeah, these guys that started out these soft drinks and they just couldn't win one way or another, right? If it goes from uh, morphine addiction, uh, you know, down to bankruptcies right and left and people getting screwed out of the formula and just, man, I, I just, oh well. Fortunately for Pepsi, the Loft folks really knew what they were doing. And so the sales continued to increase because they were doing extensive advertising. The twice the amount for the same price slogan that Pepsi was using was huge and it was hurting Coke. And then Pepsi in 1939 produced the very first radio jingle that is played coast to coast. And this this heralded the, their marketing of five cents for double the amount. It was an extremely popular jingle. Take a listen, courtesy of the University of Maryland Libraries. So Pepsi is just chugging along, doing great. Coke, meanwhile, is still stuck with this five cent price. And you ask yourself, well, why don't they just change the price? Well, the problem is that, you know, their contracts, the bottling was making all the money now. In fact, their sales at the fountain at this point were less than the bottling sales. And Coca-Cola had a lot of vending machines out there were selling these bottles. But these vending machines would only take five cents and they wouldn't make any change. So you kind of were stuck with the nickel or you might be able to modify it for one coin but it's not going to make any change. So your next step up would be 10 cents, which would double the price. Not only that, but Coke's advertising up to this point had always been always five cents. That's where they advertised everywhere. So for them to rebrand all their advertising across the country would have also been far too costly. So their only strategy that they could do at this point that would make any sense was to try and buy out these bottling franchises 
or at very least try to redo or you know renegotiate their contracts. So that's what they did. They went after all of these bottlers to get as, try to get as many of them back as they could, and then they just continued to advertise themselves as much as possible. So in order for to help with their sales, Coke turned to Santa Claus. Yes, Santa Claus. You know, there were many famous Coca-Cola ads um, featuring Santa Claus through the 1930s, and still up to this day you see Coke ads with Santa Claus. A lot of people say Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus, but that is not correct. Santa had even been used to advertise mineral water and ginger ale previously, not connected with Coke. But Coke's ads certainly were far more popular, and they did cement the idea of the you know, red and white coat, jolly, fat guy, what have you. Prior to Santa Claus, most of Coke's ads were with very well-dressed women. In fact, there was a famous ad from 1895, which had Boston actress Hilda Clark in it. And uh, it's one of the Coke ads you've probably seen sometime in your life of a very posh-dressed woman holding a tiny little glass that had Coca-Cola in it and whatnot. In fact, even my mom has a mirror of this advertisement that she's kept forever and ever. So Coke just continued its advertising. In fact, uh, Coca-Cola ended up being the very first commercial sponsor of the Olympic Games, advertising in the 1928 Games in Amsterdam, and they have sponsored the Olympics ever since. And just for the heck of it, in 1935, Coke went ahead and got itself certified kosher, so there'd be no problem with our Jewish brothers and sisters enjoying Coca-Cola, and that actually caused them to have to disclose the secret formula to a rabbi. So hey, one other guy got to know the secret formula instead of just the two that they always claim. So throughout the 40s now, we didn't really have uh, tons of drama on either side of Coke or Pepsi. It was just really a battle of the advertising. Coke was being very popular with their Santa ads. The Pepsi jingle was super popular, getting played coast to coast. But Coke was still losing market share uh, because Pepsi was giving you twice the amount of product for the same price. But see, Coke knew that Pepsi couldn't do that forever. And Pepsi knew that as well. But they considered that, you know, the reduced profit is worth it considering the amount of market share gains they're having. So Coke just kept spending money on ads. They were still selling syrup only for the most part at this point. And they're trying to get out of these bottling contracts. In 1941, they started doing an advertising where they were really using the word Coke instead of only Coca-Cola. So all the ads were themed around Coke means Coca-Cola. So again, trying everything they can as far as a, a branding standpoint to try to have some profitability. But in the mid-40s, Pepsi and their new president, Walter Mack, he saw that the African-American market was very underserved. So Mack hired an all-black sales team, and he toured the United States doing presentations, the sales team. And they were crazy. I mean, they were going out at seven days a week, and they went everywhere. They went to festivals, uh, high school gyms, churches, anywhere and everywhere that somebody would listen to them talk about Pepsi. That's where they went. And then Mac also released these ads that were profiling very prominent African-Americans. So these actions uh, were very controversial among other Pepsi executives and even some of the bottlers, because you have to remember we still have segregation going on at this point. And uh, Mac and some of the other executives had received threats 
privately by quite a few people, and even publicly by the Ku Klux Klan. But thankfully, no major incidents happened. The ads and the sales team were highly successful in bringing African Americans to Pepsi, and their market share climbed dramatically among African Americans. In fact, surveys during that time among African Americans stated that they were three times more likely to drink Pepsi than Coke. Then when 1950 rolled around, Mac had left Pepsi-Cola and uh, his replacement cut that sales team. But Pepsi wasn't done with surprises they had in store. Mac's replacement that ended up sticking around was Alfred Steele. And this was a big deal for Pepsi because Alfred Steele, first of all, was a former vice president of Coke. So he had the inside scoop of what was going on over at Coke. And even more importantly, the soon-to-be husband of famous Hollywood actress Joan Crawford. Now, Steele and Crawford, they married in 1955, and Pepsi sales under Steele tripled between 55 and 57. Crawford had went around and promoted Pepsi on TV shows, beauty pageants, uh, even had the, the product placed in some films that she was in. So she became a real spokesperson and champion for Pepsi, and it was working amazing for them. Now, Steele made it all the way through running Pepsi till 1959 when he passed away, and uh, Crawford, still kicking, was appointed to the Pepsi board of directors, and she just promoted it tirelessly. Um, She toured the country uh, promoting Pepsi every way she possibly could. She even received an award called the Pally Award, which is given to the employee with the most significant contribution to company sales. And in 1966 alone, she traveled 100,000 miles doing promos for Pepsi. So Crawford helped their sales during this time tremendously. And she even stayed on the board and promoted Pepsi every way she could until 1973. That's when she retired at 65 years old. So Coke now is entering the 50s and they own 460,000 vending machines. Now think about that just for a second. In 1950, Coke has 460,000 vending machines selling Coke out there. In fact, they owned 85% of all the vending machines in the country. But these machines couldn't make change with multiple coins. So as I mentioned before, your only option was to to put in one dime or two nickels. Again, doesn't really work well doubling the price when your competition is already giving twice as much for the same price you're currently at. So they couldn't jump to 10 cents and they couldn't rebrand all the machines instantly so that they didn't know what to do so in 1951 they knew they had to do something so they stopped advertising coke as at the five cent price so the always five cents or or the price of coke was omitted from all the ads starting in 1951 and and i gotta love the guts on this so their solution was they asked the united states treasury to mint a seven and a half cent coin That way, all their vending machines that would just take one coin could accept one seven and a half cent coin, and now Coke's price goes up seven to seven and a half cents. It's a win-win for the whole country, right? And of course, the United States Treasury said, hell no, we're not going to do that. 
So think about this, the position Coke is in. All of these events had happened since Coke was founded, okay? Pepsi had come along to compete with them. We've had World War I, Prohibition. We had the Great Depression. Taxes increased. There was a caffeine shortage. There was a caramel shortage. And we had World War II. Now, during this period of time, inflation was very, very tame. But still, Coke should have been at the price of about 17 cents at that point, And they're still at five cents. So they had to change. They didn't really have a choice in changing. So in 1953, after the Treasury had told them, no, we're not making you a seven and a half cent, Coke finally started raising prices. And the different bottlers that had not renegotiated with Coke yet or what have you, they raised the price somewhere between six cents to 10 cents, depending on where around the country uh, you were located. The good thing that helped Coke in this point was that their vending machines could start making change now. So they started slowly replacing vending machines with ones that could make change. Now, of course, this is going to help them in the long run dramatically, but it was a, quite a while to get the transition going. Well, Coke thought, well, here's another way we could reduce cost and increase profitability. They started testing putting Coca-Cola in cans. Now, they weren't aluminum cans originally, but in 1955, they sent cans over to the American troops overseas as a test to see how it worked out. And they eventually got it right and tweaked it and started making cans available to the public in 1960. Now, this, of course, is going to be cheaper than the bottles. And not only that, it's going to make transportation much easier as well. So 1960, Coke puts the cans out to the general public, and that starts helping them quite a bit. Interestingly enough, it was Pepsi who had the first cans out. They had them out in 1948. But those cans were 12 ounces and sold for 10 cents. So you weren't getting the standard deal that you got in the glass bottles. You were paying full price for the 12 ounce Coke for the luxury of a can. But these cans definitely were not widely available. Very, very, very rare and worth buku bucks if you have one of them today. So Coke was now at its higher price. It was getting its new vending machines. It was cranking out even more and more ads, and so it's seeing higher profitability, a better return finally. So they're, they're finally kind of off the ropes. They're coming back strong. And what's Pepsi's response to this? Pepsi says, you know what? We're going to merge with Frito-Lay. And in 1965, Pepsi-Cola merges with Frito-Lay. And uh, they now have the joint brands of Fritos, Doritos, Lay's, and Rolled Gold Pretzels. So this merger has given Pepsi pretty much international sway, which equals or rivals Coke. So Pepsi decides their new strategy is to become a global, like dominating international brand in multiple aspects of food and beverage. Interestingly enough, 1965 was also the year that Quaker Oats introduced Quisp cereal. And if you're, I don't know if you remember Quisp, but it showed a weird looking alien and he had a propeller on his head. Now, this cereal will become relevant to Pepsi in the near future, but I'm just going to touch on it now anyway because I really want to. Squirrel! Yeah, I'm sure you've seen Quisp. You've probably never tried it. 
I, I've never tried it, but I've always wanted to, and I've always wondered about it. So reviving it in this research, I'm definitely going to get me some Quisp now. Quisp was introduced in 65 along with a sister cereal called Quake. So Quisp is a sweet corn cereal of tiny little discs that look kind of like UFOs. And Quake was rice, oats, and corn cereal, and they were shaped like gears, like you would see in machinery. Uh, The Quisp mascot was obviously like an alien, and the Quake mascot was like part miner and part cowboy. Interestingly enough, Quaker made both of these cereals, and they advertised them together as a competition between themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, before your very eyes, the Quaker Oats Company will now introduce two new cereals. I'm Crisp, the Crisp new cereal from outer space. The biggest selling cereal from Saturn to Alpha Centauri. Crisp is sugary sweet and vitamin charged to give you crazy energy. What's new with you? I am Quake, the power cereal from inner space. the earth's core, I make Quake with deep down sweetness and vitamins to give you the power of an earthquake. Get Quake. Quisp is better. Uh, fellas, why not leave it to the kids out there? Take sides with either Quake or Quisp. Or Quake. Or Quisp. Two new cereals from Quaker. <laughs> sort of a breakfast feud. So one cereal would have the primary commercial storyline, like either the cowboy or the alien doing stuff. But the other character would appear briefly in that commercial to say his cereal was better. It, it was, I mean, it was pretty revolutionary marketing strategy for the time. But even better than that, all of these commercials were cartoons that were animated by Jay Ward, who was the creator of Rocky and Bullwinkle. So they had Rocky and Bullwinkle style characters and animation and voices And the commercials are just great. So after seven years of rivalry, and even the introduction of an orange kangaroo, which I'm not even going to get into, Quaker held a contest in 72 to get rid of one of the cereals via a kid's vote. So yes, after campaigns from both the Quake Miner and the Quisp Alien via cartoons, kids voted, and Quaker literally got rid of Quake. Something that just, it just, this didn't happen prior to social media where they just took a vote and said, ah, oh, the kids don't like this one, so it's gone. But it happened. Quake was gone. So Quisp stayed on the shelves to the late 70s and it was brought back in 2012. It's still a Quaker product, although it's pretty hard to find, but you can order it online for about $5. Um, I've been told it tastes very similar to Captain Crunch and Funny enough, most people actually prefer Quisp to Captain Crunch. So do yourself a favor, look up Quisp and watch the Quisp and Quake commercials on YouTube. The animation on these and the stories are are great. It's just such a great snapshot of a much funnier and and lighter time. So, you know, and try yourself some Quisp too. You You only live once. Now, back in Soda Land. I'm so sorry. I got sidetracked. The name of the game is advertising, and that's what Coke and Pepsi are both doing. Pepsi is focusing on their international market, and Coke, they really need some kind of innovation. So in 1963, 
Coke dropped a bomb that would change sodas forever. They introduced the first major diet soda, Tab. And they called it Tab because you could keep a tab on your calories. Boy, isn't that clever. Tab sales started taking off, but that exclusivity and and promise for Coke was pretty short-lived because Diet Pepsi debuted a year later. The rest of the 60s were pretty tame for both brands. They focused a lot of energy on the reduced calorie sodas that they had just created. And we can see that they started planting the seeds for the upcoming cola wars as celebrities started to get lined up to promote upcoming fitness trends and athletics and whatnot. But, and there's always a but, there was a big change lurking right around the corner that would impact both brands. And it was a change so big, it would even require alteration of their original recipes. And this change was prompted by the most unusual player in the game you could imagine, the Soviet Union. Well, thank you so much for listening to part two of Coke versus Pepsi. Uh, We've got uh, part three, which is going to take us through and all the way into the modern era and wrap it up. That will be coming up shortly. So please, as always, subscribe, like, share, forward, comment. I'll keep cranking these out for you. If you keep telling me that I'm not wasting your time, you've got Barrett Crow as always, and love ya. I'm so sorry. I got sidetracked.